Father, we thank you uh, for all that you've done and all that you have proven to be in our world and in our lives. We lift up you uh, this morning. Uh, we lift up your name. We lift up your glory. Uh, we want to praise you. We want to verbalize the praises of your creation. You have come on bowed knee before you and said that you are Lord. You are the King. You are the Holy One. Um, and you are the one that has saved us and has loved us and has redeemed us. As we open up the scriptures this morning, Father, I ask that you would speak to us, that you would be clear to us, um, that even in ways that it might um, offend and, and contradict what we might think on our own, um, that you would speak and move and show us the path of life, show us the way of peace, show us the kingdom that you have brought, that you are bringing. Father, we pray that you would fill us up so much that it would just flow out of us. And, and as we went out into the world, the world that you made, the world that you're redeeming, you would use us in a powerful way, Father. That our lives would matter, our lives would um, have purpose, um, and our lives would find their place uh, in your life, and in your mission, and in your love. We pray all these things, Father, um, in your Son's name. Uh, amen. Well, good morning. Let's get after it. If you got a Bible, Luke chapter 10. If you don't have one, there should be one in front of you in a seat. Um, feel free to get that open. Luke chapter 10 is where we're going to be. <clears throat> Luke chapter 10. Uh, it's our fifth week in our Messy Kingdom series. If you're a visitor with us, welcome. Uh, my name is Mike Skinner. I am the lead pastor here at First Colony. We don't do a lot of fancy things at First Colony, um, but we do preach uh, out of the Bible. Um, and so we'll continue to do that this morning. Luke chapter 10. Uh, is where we'll be. Uh, this week was kind of up and down for me. Um, literally, I had some back problems. Uh, so I was up and, and I was down a little bit. Um, I, so Young Adults Group had a, uh, a game night uh, this past Friday, um, and we were playing some cards, um, which was interesting because I've never played cards before because I'm a pastor. Um, but I ended up winning, uh, so there's a highlight, right? Uh, got bragging rights. I think until next Christmas is what the ruling is uh, on that. Um, but yeah, my, no, my back, like, for the last couple of weeks has been kind of getting worse and worse, and then this week it just kind of all hit on me, um, and so there are, I mean, like, right about now I can't sit for more about 10 or 15 minutes, um, so laying down a lot these days, uh, see what modern medicine can do for me this week, um, but if you know me, you know uh, I'm kind of a, a wimp about things like that, um, and I, I mean, I have some weird things about me, we all do, uh, and so it, it doesn't help any for me to hide those kind of things, and so I always want to be honest here, um, I hate rain. You know that about me. I've told you that plenty of times. I hate rain. I get upset at God when it rains. Um, that's deep-seated, okay? That goes way back. Um, but, but when I get when I start having physical pain and, and I can't, like, explain and I can't stop it right away, I just get real, like, angry. And there's just this anger that freshes up inside of me. And I have no clue um, where it comes from or how to stop it and things like that. Um, so the week was kind of a perfect storm for me with a whole bunch of different things that I had to, to do and get accomplished. And then on top of all that, like, I couldn't sit down and my back is just killing me. And I found myself just really upset, really frustrated, not wanting to talk to anybody, not wanting to um, converse with anybody. If someone asked me for a favor or something like that, I would just kind of snap back at them, like, who do you think you are asking me to hold the door open for you? Uh, <laughs> do you not know that my back hurts? Um, and I've never really had back problems. So you hear about back problems, but it doesn't really exist for you sometimes until it happens to you. Um, but here's what's happening, and here's the point of this. Um, we all have stories that we play in our head or in our heart, that explain the things that we do. We have self-justification stories, narratives, okay? Um, so 
I mean, we laugh, and it's stupid. It's stupid for me to be upset because my back's hurting to take it out on other people. I mean, when I say it like that, yeah, that sounds stupid. But let me play for you just the narrative that's happening in my mind. Here's how I'm justifying the action, because here's the story that's happening in my heart. Um, I'm going, look, God, I'm, I'm going to have done so much for you. I spent the last four years doing nothing but stuff for you. I'm working my tail off. And you're in control of my back, not me. And you're going to let this happen? And this week, you're going to let my back happen? Yeah, so, that, so I am angry. I'm angry at you, and I don't want to be around anybody. Now, here's the, the narrative that should be playing in my mind, that God throws back at me. Hey, okay, you were damned, uh, and I showed you grace, and then I invited you in to play with me um, in this, this gospel thing that I'm doing. I uh, don't need you. Uh, kind of don't want you right now. Uh, you get to participate. So you need to have a perspective check. You need to go check yourself uh, and go examine your own heart. Um, but, but we have this story, right? And so when we're driving in the car and we get upset at someone, maybe an overreaction, we have a story that's playing through our mind. Or when someone cuts us off, right, we have this story. We justify our actions with stories. That's what happens. And a lot of times what Jesus is going to do in his teachings is he's going to point out the story that we're using to justify our actions. And, and it's going to sound silly to us, right? Because they normally do when you verbalize them. I mean, that's a lot of what therapy is. You sit down and explain what you're thinking, and really, for a lot of people, that's all you need to do. Because as soon as you hear it, you're like, oh, oh, yeah, that wasn't right. And Jesus is going to expose that. He's going to replace it with the narrative that, that should be there, um, that should be in its place. Here's what I've learned. Um, reading the Gospels is so interesting because it constantly forces you to choose. Do I follow Jesus or do I follow me and want Jesus' name behind it? Particularly the Gospels, over and over again, are going to tell us to do stuff and tell us to think in certain ways that we're going, oh, no. No, I just don't, I don't agree with that. I don't want to do that. I don't agree with that. What I've found and continue to find, even in my own heart sometimes, is that we love the Jesus that died for us on a cross. But we don't like as much the Jesus who taught about how to live and about what life looks like for those who follow him. We don't like it when he tells us to do certain things. We don't like it when he makes these demands on us that seem untainable, un, un, unpossible, impossible, that we don't like that. We, we want to ignore that. We want to go back to, well, he, he died for us and, and we get to go to heaven for all of eternity. But as we've seen over the last few weeks, the, the messy kingdom, the story is opposite. Jesus comes in Mark 1. He says, the kingdom of God is here. Through me, through my work, Israel's God is setting up his kingdom. He's taking control. He's fixing things. He's healing those who are broken. He's saving that which is lost. He's finding that which is wandered off. And he's doing it through Jesus. He's building a kingdom with citizens, you and I, those who would believe, who would trust, who would follow. So two weeks ago, we looked at prayer, how praying is one of the central activities of the kingdom. Last week, we looked at our money, the economy of the kingdom. We just use our money differently than, than others, than people who don't belong to the kingdom. This week, we're going to look at our relationships. We're going to look at the social aspect of kingdom life. And just as much, if not more so, with money, the things that Jesus say um, and, and tell us to do won't make sense to us. It won't make sense to us, and, and, and they're going to, I mean, they, they really would offend us if we really open up ourselves to them. Um, but as always, we're going to do our best, um, and we're going to acknowledge that He is God, and He is Lord, and we are not, and we submit to Him. And we're committed to Him more than we are to any of our own ideas. Um, and so what He's going to do today, we'll see it, is He's going to expose um, some narratives that we play on the inside that then lead us to act in ways that He says aren't ways kingdom people should act. Okay? So we'll read it, Luke 10. Verse 25. Luke 10, verse 25. 
And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly, do this and live. But he, the, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay back when I'm back. Which of these three do you think, Jesus says, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. We have the story of the Good Samaritan. It'll hinge on a few questions that each of the characters ask. It'll hinge on the fact that Jesus doesn't seem to answer the lawyer's question. It'll hinge on the command that Jesus gives after not answering the question at the very end. Um, The Good Samaritan um, is a story that we're all familiar with. And so that immediately means... Um, usually in Christian circles, we're inoculated to it. Inoculated is a vaccine term, medicine term, right? You get just enough of the, the, the um, you know, bacteria, I mean, whatever it would be, uh, you get just enough, right, so that it won't affect you. And that's what happens a lot of times with Christians. We get just enough of the story. We get just enough of what's happening so that we'll never, ever deal with it. We'll never have to pay attention to it. Um, The Good Samaritan is a dead metaphor. We use this word a lot, the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan. To us, it just simply means someone who does good things, someone who helps somebody out. Um, But as we'll see, and I'll show you this morning, I think in first century um, Judaism in this time period, um, it's it's pretty radical. I'm not sure there's something Jesus says here um, in the Gospels that's more radical than what he says here. When he says Samaritan was the hero. He was talking about a pagan, wicked terrorist when he talks about the Samaritan. Not someone who does good. A dead metaphor. We use it over and over and over and over and over again, and it loses its force for us, okay? So let's start at the beginning. We've got this scene here. A lawyer comes up to Jesus to put him to the test. And he says, Teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Um, now, don't read this as someone coming up, um, as maybe we would do in the 21st century, and saying, um, what do I need to do to go to heaven after I die? Eternal life is um, the kingdom. It's the age to come. It's when God would come in and set up his reign in history, okay? That's why in John's gospel, the eternal life starts now, because it's a, a quality of life more than a quantity of life. It is quantity, but it's more of a quality, the life of the new age, the life of heaven. What must I do, he says, to inherit that eternal life, to guarantee that I'm a part of that, What would it look like if I was a part of that? What does life look like in the kingdom? Now, Jesus, real interesting here, the guy's a lawyer, not like a secular lawyer, right? But a lawyer, a teacher of the law, big L, big L lawyer, the law of God, the Torah. Jesus asked him a question, says, hey, you're the expert. How do you read it? Jesus does this a lot. Like he feels a trap coming on him. He'll flip the question right around. Um, 
pretty wise thing to do. I mean, just in general, uh, there was a Jewish man once who was asked by a reporter, hey, it seems like some of the more wise Jewish men often return questions with questions. And the, the reporter goes, why do you do that? And he thought for a minute and he looked back and goes, well, why not? <laughs> uh, <laughs> proving the point there. Um, so, so the guy comes up to Jesus, hey, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I guarantee that I'm a part of that movement, that I'm a part of that time? And Jesus goes, well, what would you say? I mean, how do you read the law? What, what would you say? He answers back with this, the, the law of love, the, the double law here. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your strength and your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Um, we might call this a, a double love law, okay? So, so life in the kingdom is characterized by double love. Um, and now, interestingly enough, Jesus responds not with, okay, that's kind of right, or no, that's completely wrong. He responds with, nailed it. That's it. Do it, you'll live. That's how you'll inherit the kingdom of God. That's how you'll know that you're a part. If you're the type of person who loves God and who loves other people, you can be guaranteed that you have a share. You have an inheritance. You are getting that. That you're inside the kingdom. Now, this is a, a conflation of two Old Testament texts. He takes two texts and brings them together. Um, you have it on your worship guide here. The first is Deuteronomy 6.5. And the second is uh, Leviticus 19. The Deuteronomy passage would be the love of the Lord your God. Um, and then the Leviticus passage would be the love your neighbor as yourself. Um, now, this was these two ideas, loving God and loving your neighbor from the Old Testament, were often put together. And we know that Jesus did this. Um, he very characteristically <coughs> said this was the greatest commandment. This was the most important thing to do. You have it here again on your worship guide, Matthew 22, up top. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law. And all the prophets. You see that he says it again in Mark chapter 12. Um, what's most likely happening here is that the lawyer knew that's the answer Jesus wanted. He knew that that was the answer Jesus was giving. It wasn't a controversial answer. Again, other Jewish people said something similar to that. Um, there's a kind of an axiom that a good teacher usually says his best stuff over and over again, right? Like if you've ever heard a point from me that was like, oh my gosh, that was amazing. I probably say it a lot. Okay? I probably say it when I go preach other places. I probably say it when I'm talking to someone in the street. It probably wasn't like a one-time deal and I'm walking away from it. So Jesus has these things. He's saying them. He's an itinerant preacher. He's preaching to new people all the time. The lawyer probably knows this is one of his key type things, right? This is what he would answer. The lawyer wants to get to the second question. So he, he goes, okay, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor yourself. And Jesus goes, that's right. Go and do it. That's what life in essence, looks like in the kingdom, in the age to come, in life that is eternal. Um, now, we could break it down just a bit. You have the love towards God, kind of a, we might say like a, a vertical love. Um, we're loving God. Um, and, but it's got this kind of all-encompassing um, intensity to it, um, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. It's not, it's not a hobby, I mean, we could say. I mean, that, I think that's where some of us get thrown off nowadays. Um, is it's just kind of something we might like to do, or we might feel like doing sometimes. Um, but this is something that, that you were commanded to do with, I mean, as much energy and creativity and discipline as you had. Love the Lord your God. Well, why? Well, because he has saved you and redeemed you. Um, from the Deuteronomy text, the Lord would be God's name, Yahweh. Love Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Moses, and Jacob, the God of David. Your God. Right there for the Hebrew person, we've talked about it when we, we talk about the new covenant. That's where all the emotion is. The Lord, your God. 
the one who saved you, the one who brought you out of Egypt, the one who has shown grace and mercy and made you his people. Love him, respond to him with everything that you've got, give him your entire life. And then love toward your neighbors, love the people around you. And Jesus here gives us what some have called the golden rule. Love your neighbor, um, how? Well, as yourself. Look at other people as you would look at yourself. Treat them like you would treat yourself. Now, be careful here, um, because some misunderstand this, uh, to be treat other people the way that they treat you, which is a different concept altogether, okay, um, if you follow that. And then there's the um, silver rule, some have called it, I guess like second in command, which is... Don't do to other people what you don't want them to do to you in the negative. The difference in the negative versus the positive is the negative is really just defensive. Just make sure you never infringe on somebody that you wouldn't want them to infringe on you about that thing. Um, The golden rule is active. It puts the ball in your court. You need to do to the people around you what you would want, desire, if you were in the same situation, for them to do to you. So he says, love God with everything that you've got. And then look at your neighbors and say, what would I desire? What would I do? We'll talk about this, but the, the social laws of the Old Testament like this, love your neighbors yourself, were based off of God's character. Um, almost all the laws in the Old Testament had some kind of basis or some kind of backing in the redemption that God had shown. Um, so they had laws like you should love the stranger, the immigrant, the foreigner. Why? Well, because you were once a foreigner and God saved you. You should forgive other people. Why? Well, because God forgave you. You should be holy. The most famous part of the ethical code in the Old Testament. Be holy, for I am holy. Reflect my character. Reflect my heart. If you've experienced me, if you're in my family, if you're one of my people, then you should start to look like me. You should let that reflect out of you. So here's what the, 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 the lawyer asks. He, he wanted to get to this, so desiring to justify himself, uh, he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And this was, a, this was the controversial question at the time. I mean, this is what everyone was talking about. So some people say the neighbor was um, Jewish people. That's who the neighbor was. And it seems like maybe that's what is meant in this Leviticus text. Um, that the neighbor is my Jewish people. Um, some would say it's Jewish people and any Gentiles who convert. Who completely convert. It's any Gentiles. Then other stricter Jewish people say the neighbor is faithful Jews. So I get to look at this person and say, uh, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're not in there. They are, they're not, they are, they're not. Then there were even more strict Jews who would say the, the neighbor was those who are in my sect. So they're the ones who are the Pharisees or the Sadducees. They're the ones who wear my uniform. They're the ones on my team. They're the ones with the, the they carry the cards of the club, right? Who is the neighbor? Well, Jesus, up to this point, has been known for um, kind of blowing that whole worldview up. He's on a journey. He's going through Samaritan towns. It seems like the lawyer wants to, to expose Jesus for saying, the neighbor's everybody. God's love is here for everybody. And in fact, that's what Jesus does. The lawyer gets what he asked for. But Jesus does it in such a way, as he usually does, to show this was the intent of the law the whole time. This is what the kingdom was always going to look like, okay? So who is my neighbor? Now, a side note, religious people love to do this. They love to ask questions and define, right? Um, so much so that we can um, hypothetically think out every scenario and define every word to the, the point that we never actually get around to doing what Jesus asked us to do, right? Um, so this guy is in this kind of, we're already saying it, he's, he's trying to limit who's his neighbor. I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't have to treat that person like my neighbor because they're not my neighbor, Jesus. Where's the line here? Surely not everyone's our neighbor. 
surely the people you're around right now, the Samaritans, aren't your neighbor. Who's the neighbor? Yeah, love your neighbor, but who is that? Well, Jesus gives him a story. Let's look at it. Um, now, this story, again, I think is, is one of the most shocking things Jesus ever said. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem was where the temple was at on a mountain. Jericho is a city nearby, a um, really nice city, kind of like a summer vacationing place. Okay, So if you worked at the temple, a lot of people would live in Jericho. It was a 17-mile walk. So more miles than I've walked in my life. Um, it was 17 miles. It was a long, long little hike there. Uh, and then it was 3,000 miles down. So you, you really were going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it was real famous, still is actually to this day, for being dangerous. This is where um, your criminals would hang out. Uh, and your thieves and robbers um, and people like that would hang out. Because it was real hilly and there were lots of turns and things like that. Um, so think like Star Wars movie, right? With the, I mean, that's just kind of the feel of it. There's a, a place in it, a little path called the, the Way of Blood. Um, just because you, you typically got beat up there. I mean, that's where a lot of the bad things happened to you. So real famous back then and today. Um, this is just kind of a dangerous road. A lot of times when, when empires would come in and take over this land, which happened a lot throughout history, they would set up troops right here on this road and accompany their citizens back and forth. It was a dangerous place to be. So everyone knows what Jesus is talking about. Okay, there's a guy going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. If he's by himself, probably not good news. Um, he, he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Half dead probably, um, in the Greek here, is uh, he appeared to be dead. Uh, he was right there on the verge. Um, so he's naked, he's beat up, uh, they take everything, uh, and he's laying half dead. Now, by chance, good news, a priest is coming down the road. A priest is coming down. Priests were the varsity-level Jewish leaders, okay? These were the highest people in the temple. They did the sacrifices. They mediated um, God's grace to you. They interceded for you. A priest is coming by, and when he saw him, he sees him. Notice every, every character here is going to see the, the guy. He sees him and passes by. Now, if you were to go to Google, maybe, uh, and look up pictures of this road, uh, most of the road is very narrow, where a lot of people have said after walking the road, I mean, it would seem like you have to step over the guy who's on the side of the road. Um, it's not like a five-lane highway, right, where you can be on the other side and almost not see someone across the way. Um, it would seem like the priest is, 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 and there's a cliff for most of the road, so a couple people have joked, like, you're like hugging the cliff, like you're hugging the edge like to get around. It's not a lot of space here. So the priest sees him or walks by him. There's more people coming. It's okay. This guy's got some more chances. Um, so likewise, a Levite. Levite is JV Jewish class, okay? They're the JV guy who's never going to get on varsity. I don't know if you know that guy. Um, they're, the, they're the helpers at the temple, okay? So they are like the lower class priests. They're the ones who typically do the music. Not that the music people are lower class, Chris. Um, just typically... <laughs> I'm just saying it's in the Bible. Um, <laughs> see, the analogy doesn't work because me and Chris both fail in this story. So we're both, we're both being thrown under and probably me more so. Um, but the Levites did the music and they kind of helped set up um, things like that. When he comes to the place, he sees him just like the priest did. And he steps over him. And he keeps going. Now in stories like this, you expect the third person, right? There's going to be a third guy who comes. He's going to save the day. What you would expect without knowing the story is the third guy is going to be an average Jew. He's going to be a, a layman. And it's going to be an anti-clerical sermon. Which is, look at all these priests, look at the people who teach the law, and they're hypocrites, they don't do it. And this average guy, he does it. What you get instead is the exact opposite. Because who shows up? A Samaritan. A Samaritan. 
maybe the most hated group of people by the Jews. An enemy, if you were ever to define one. We'll get into it a little bit more in a minute. Samaritan shows up. He sees him, but something changes. He doesn't see him and keep going. He sees him and has compassion. He empathizes. He puts himself in the place of the man who's in the ditch, most likely a Jewish man. And he goes over and helps him. He stops and he helps. And he gives him oil and wine for the wound, oil to soothe it, wine to clean it. He takes him to an inn. And he saves them for the night. He, he's helping him. He's binding him up. Um, notice when he's binding up, they, he probably didn't have a first aid kit with him with bandages. So he's probably taking off his clothes, tearing off maybe a piece of his tunic and putting it around the wounds. Um, and then he's also putting him on his animal. Probably if he was wealthy enough to have an animal, that's pretty blessed at this time for this journey. Probably didn't have two. He sure wouldn't have two if he was by himself. Uh, so he's walking the rest of these 17 miles. Um, so this Samaritan is going out of his way. He goes to the end, continues to go out of his way. He's gone out of his way with um, his safety. We'll talk about that. His time. And now with his money, he pays for probably about 24 nights uh, in this inn. And then says, here's a blank check. I got to leave. Um, but if this guy stays here for a little more, if he needs something else, you know me. Put it on my tab. I'll be back. I'll pay for it all. He writes a blank check. Goes on his way. And Jesus goes, who turned out to be the neighbor to the guy in the ditch? It's a different question than what the lawyer asked him. The lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus goes, who became your neighbor? There's a shift there. Jesus could have told the story where the Samaritans in the ditch and the Jewish guy, the third one, walks by and helps him. And then Jesus would have gone, now, who would be your neighbor? That would have answered the question. Jesus' parable answers a different question. The guy goes, uh, the guy who showed mercy. Notice he can't bring himself to say the word Samaritan. And then Jesus goes, yeah, go and do that. And you see why Jesus got crucified. You don't get crucified for going around telling people, just, hey, just be nice to people and hold doors open. You get crucified for going around saying, hey, the people who have oppressed you and who hate you, your most fierce enemies, you love them, you risk your life for them. That's when people get upset. Happened then, it still happens to this day. So let's walk through it, okay? Jesus tells a, a radical story about someone who fulfills the law of love. Here's someone who loves their neighbor as themselves. Here's someone who truly defines who a neighbor is. Who's the neighbor? Well, the Samaritan's neighbor. Who was the Samaritan's neighbor? Well, it was a Jewish person, someone across the boundary lines of community. And the story's hero um, could not have been more shocking. It was the Samaritan. Uh, it was interesting, uh, this week, um, I was just studying the story, a lot of people say uh, you would expect um, the third character to, again, be a, just a normal Jewish person. One scholar even went so far to say, this is how we know this story has been edited. It's not true. It's not from Jesus, because he wouldn't have said the Samaritan. He would have said an average Jewish person. And other scholars have gone back to this guy and gone, that's the point. <laughs> that's why Jesus said it. Yes, because everyone would have expected the other story. But Jesus put the Samaritan in the picture. Now, let me walk through Samaritans for you. Um, Samaritans um, find their um, lineage, their history, all the way back to when the kingdom split. After Solomon, the kingdom splits. Um, way back when, David had a son, Solomon. After Solomon, the kingdom split. And the northern ten kingdoms were called Israel. The southern two kingdoms were called Judah. Judah had Jerusalem. That's the temple. That's the Davidic line. That's the, that's the big part of the Jewish faith. Um, the northern ten tribes were kind of left on their own. They made a, a capital city for themselves called Samaria. Now, this is before the Samaritans, but they had the city Samaria. Um, and the northern ten were prone to idolatry and bad kings. Um, they just kind of had a rough time at it. And about the 8th century BC, Assyria, an empire, came in and crushed them. 
And then we, we never really hear back from the ten tribes up there. By the time of Jesus, there's only two tribes left, maybe two and a half. Um, but what would happen is the few people who survived that attack, the Assyrians sent in their own people to colonize. And those people intermarried with the remaining survivors, the Jewish people. And with that, they brought their own gods and their own practices and things like that. Well, the southern kingdom eventually got exiled by Babylon, and then they got brought back. And then the trouble started. Because you had this group of people right there in their land who said, it's our land. And the Jewish people said, no, 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 it's our land, and y'all are traitors. So they would call them half-breeds. You, you ruined the, the, the race. You ruined the mix. You married and had kids, people you shouldn't have. And they called them pagans. Because you, you have taken our religion, you've twisted it, and brought in false things. So they, they had different scriptures, they had de- different rituals that they would do. Um, they built their own temple up in the north, which is, is bad um, for the Orthodox Jews. They built their own temple, which is basically the same as blaspheming. Even if you're saying you're worshiping the same God, they built their own temple, so they're religiously opposed to them. And then there were the wars. Then there was the killings and the, the terrorizing that happened. So in one, uh, I believe it's 28, yeah, 128, the Jewish people gathered an army together and they went to Samaria and they went to the temple that the Samarians had built and that they worshipped at and they crumbled it. They destroyed it and they slaughtered the city, which is interesting because that's what happened to the Jewish people. The Babylonians, Babylonians came in and destroyed their temple and killed them. They hated it. It wasn't so fun for them when it happened. They went up to Samaria, started a war. Well, the Samaritans festered. You had these small outbreaks back and forth, back and forth. Um, let's fast forward a little bit. Right before this time, Jesus speaking, in 6 AD, okay? So Jesus probably born around 3 AD. Um, as he's a little kid, a few Samarian young men snuck into Jerusalem around the time of Passover. You know, Passover, Jewish people would come to Jerusalem. They would celebrate the Exodus. Jesus' last supper happened at the Passover feast. They snuck into Jerusalem around the time of the Passover feast and they snuck into the temple in the middle of the night. And what they brought with them into the temple was bags and bags of bones, human bones, skeletons, and skulls. And they littered the temple with these skulls, which is bad news. This would have made the temple itself, as a whole, impure for the Passover feast. This would have... Um, can we say, sparked up some rivalry. This would have, in one small act, infuriated the entire nation, not only because they graffitied our temple, but because they declared war against our God. They've made the temple impure. The Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. They hated each other. So when Jesus tells us a story where the hero is the Samaritan, any example I could give you that would make sense in my mind would be too offensive for me to say right now. We just couldn't do it. I don't think we have the framework to handle that kind of stuff. This was as offensive as you could possibly get. Think of every kind of enemy, and that's characterized right there in the Samaritans. Against your God, against your race, against your nation or political group. So you have this here in your worship guide, the Samaritans and the Jews. They were religious National, racial, personal enemies. It does not get more intense than these two groups. They didn't just not like each other, right? 
They didn't just go, ah, oh, we don't like your clothes, we don't like the way you look. They went, we don't like the way you worship, we don't like the way uh, you have intermarried, we don't like the way you wage war against us and against our God. And we don't like you. But because of all of that. So the lawyer comes and says, who's, who's my neighbor? And Jesus answers back about a question about the kingdom of God and says, well, the Samaritan seems to be the one who fulfilled the law. The, the losers in the story are, are the people who self-justify themselves, the religious people. They're telling them stories. They're telling themselves stories. They know the law, but they're telling themselves stories. So here's where we get back to, okay? I got a bad back and I'm angry, but I've got a story in my mind that makes sense of that, that justifies my decisions. Well, well these guys have self-justifying stories too. We've got narratives that um, enable us to act the way we do. So there's lots of them that we could import into the story. Some have said they didn't help the guy for religious reasons. They could have been impure if they had touched a dead corpse. He looked like he was dead. Um, others have pointed out that the story seems to say that they were going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, which means they have no religious excuse. They're done with their service at the temple. It wouldn't have been that big of a deal for them to have touched a dead corpse. Maybe the priest, because maybe the priest at all times couldn't touch a dead corpse. The Levite for sure could have touched a dead body if he wasn't serving or about to serve in the temple. So they're coming down. They don't have an excuse. Even if they do, I don't think that gets them off the hook. Maybe they had a religious story. Maybe they had this narrative in their mind where they were going to serve God and they had these other more religious laws that would cause them to not show care to this person. <laughs> Notice, the person that is, is a Jew, most likely. Jesus doesn't say what nationality they are and what faith they are. Probably because that's part of the point. It doesn't matter. But if they're in Jericho, in Jerusalem, it's probably a Jew. So would be their neighbor by almost anyone's definition. But maybe they're telling themselves a religious story that justifies they're not helping. Or maybe they're telling themselves a story about risk and danger. This was a scary place to be. If someone's laying on the floor beat up, that typically doesn't make you want to slow down. They just want to increase the pace a little bit. Particularly if they might still be alive, the people who did that might not be far off. I don't know if you've ever been like driving through kind of like a a scarier place of town, right? And you see something shady happening. You don't like slow down, get out of the car. You, you speed up a little bit. You lock the doors. So maybe that was the, the narrative they were saying in their, their minds. Maybe that's what they were telling themselves. Well, we would love to help this guy, but maybe he's already dead. Maybe he was about to die. And, and it would be worse if we stayed and we died too. So, so I guess he'll just have to stay here and, and, and slowly die. But the Samaritan comes along. And here's his narrative. I have empathy. I have sympathy. I see his struggles. And I'll help him. Not only just help him, but I'll sacrificially help him. I'll take time out of my life. I'll take risk with my life. I'll use my money. I will help him. And who's the him? Well, it's an enemy. Here's what the Sumerians' narrative could have been. Uh, good for you. Die. You had it coming to you. The Samaritan could have, a lot of people say, the Samaritan's response probably would have been to run him over a few times. He was on a horse. Let me, let me speed this up for you. But the Samaritan instead, across all of these boundaries, said, let me help you. Let me go out of my way and help you. And Jesus goes, who is the neighbor? And the guy can't say Samaritan. He says, well, the one who helped him. 
And Jesus, in one tiny story, has flipped the whole worldview of this guy on its head. Notice the questions that he asks him. So to Jesus, he, he reframes the question. No longer is it, who is my neighbor? According to the story. That's what the guy wanted. Who is my neighbor? Give me a definition. What Jesus says back, says back to him is, who became the neighbor of that guy? Who proved to be that guy's neighbor? So the question would not be, who is my neighbor? But will I be a neighbor? Not, could I consider that guy my neighbor? But Will my actions make him a neighbor? Will they include him in the category of neighbor? I mean, that's kind of the irony of the story. The, the first three guys, the guy who's beat up and the priest and Levite, are already neighbors. But that category meant nothing if those guys didn't act on it. But the Samaritan, who most definitely was not his neighbor, by almost anyone's logical reasoning, acted on it and thus created a neighbor. Um... I think Jesus is saying here, look, you, you can define the terms however you want. There's maybe no predetermined definition of neighbor. A neighbor is who you love. A neighbor is who you help. Uh, you don't get to um, define neighbor. You get to, to create neighbor. When you're, you're compassionate, when you love somebody, that's when you create the term neighbor. You have this quote here on your worship guide, Heinrich Grieben. One cannot define one's neighbor, he says. That's the wrong question. You can't define your neighbor. You can only be a neighbor. Jesus is flipping it around. Uh, and, and what he's doing is he's, he's taking, again, our way of looking at relationships and taking it to the exact opposite end. We look at other people and go, what have they done for me? How do I relate to them? Do they deserve what I'm about to do? What will they do with what I'm about to do? Jesus goes, look at yourself. Look at, at it from your end. Are you going to be a neighbor to them? Not have they been a neighbor to you. Not are they a neighbor. But are you going to act like a neighbor? Are you going to be the one who fulfills the law, like the Samaritan did? When he says, go and do likewise, I think there's two things happening. Catch both of them. One, obviously, the go and do likewise is go be like the Samaritan. Go and have compassion and show love. But who does, who does Jesus want this guy to identify with in the story? It seems like the guy in the ditch who found out that the Samaritan was his neighbor. What if when Jesus says, go and do likewise, he's, he's telling him, hey, go and, go and think and discover that this guy's your neighbor. Why don't you go get in a ditch and realize that the one who loves you is your neighbor? Why don't you go have your worldview re-exploded to be in the kingdom and to understand that everybody has an opportunity to love and show compassion? Jesus is saying here, kingdom people, they're called to sacrificially love. To give up time, money, safety, to love, even, we might say, uh, especially enemies. Even people who we say deserve what they get coming to them. Here's where we get into the, the real heart of the matter here. We have narratives in our mind that we tell ourselves and each other that excuse the way that we treat certain people. On a small scale, on a big scale. This person constantly talks bad about me. This person constantly persecutes me. This person constantly spreads lies about me. So no, I'm not going to go out of my way to help them. In fact, I'm going to throw a little party when I see them fall. I'm going to go to my office and go, oh, yeah, you messed up. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's my sin party. That's what it looks like. Um, or we go... 
this person deserves what they get coming to them. They made the mistake. They're probably going to make the mistake if I help them. They deserve it. We have stories that we tell ourselves. Jesus wants us to replace the story with the story where we're in a ditch. And we're looking into the eyes of an enemy who comes with bandages and oil and wine. And then he wants to ask you, who's your neighbor? Jesus says, tell yourself a different story if you want to be in the kingdom. And this story is going to explode what you thought about the way that you treat people. And the way that you justify the way that you treat people. Go to Luke chapter 6. What happens is we start to define and redefine and hypothetically theorize about different things, such as who is my neighbor. Jesus, again, is going to go to the strong question. But we do so much of that that we end up being able to get out of actually doing what he's asked us to do. So here's the question I would ask you. Here's the question I would ask you. Do you love different people because of Jesus? What happens for most of us, we have Jesus telling us to love the people close to us, and we have Jesus very clearly telling us to love our enemies, without question, with no qualifications. But what we do is we redefine and we re-question and we, we try to do all these different things, and what happens after 40 years, we love this people we're going to love anyways, and we hated the people we're going to hate anyways, despite the fact that Jesus taught clearly on both of them. We love the people we would have loved anyways. This is not a Christian thing to do to love people. You realize that, right? To be good to people. You're good to people who are good to you. What is kingdom life, Jesus says, is loving the people who aren't good to you. That's what people will look at and go, whoa, something is wrong there. What's happening? It's like there's a God who's in control. It's like they don't have to seek their own justice, their own vengeance. Look at Luke 6, verse 27. Um, But I say to you who hear, um, this is Jesus on the sermon, on the plain Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Love your enemies. Love, do good, bless, pray. Benevolent actions. To who? Your enemies. Those who hate you, those who curse you, those who abuse you. No thought here of of retaliation. No thought here of of inflicting vengeance or punishment. To one who strikes you on the cheek, this is a violent um, attack, offer the other also. This would be what happened on the road from from Jerusalem to Jericho. In Matthew, it's a little bit different. Matthew talks about a right cheek and a left cheek, which would imply honor and shame. Luke's version is just a violent attack. Someone strikes you, he says... Give your other cheek. Respond with generosity. Respond by surprising them. From one who takes away your cloak, give them your undershirt. This is a different way of acting. A way that's, that's, that's just different. From one who begs to you, give it all. From one who takes your goods, don't ask for them back. And here's the golden rule again. As you wish the others would do to you, so do to them. Now here's where it gets um, a little heavy. Verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? He says, you're going to brag about that? He's like, don't bring that up to God. I love the people who are good to me. He says, even sinners love those who hate him. Hey, um, mass murderers sometimes love who they, who, who love them, who, who will protect them, who will help them. That's not something to, to be proud about. 
If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But here we have it again. Love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And read then. This is a conditional. Do this and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. What's kingdom life look like with relationships? Loving. When you receive bad, you send back good. When you're cursed, you bless. When you're slandered, you pray. When you're hit, you don't hit back. And you will be sons of the Most High. Why? For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Again, these aren't arbitrary laws. This is reflecting the character of God himself. Be merciful, Luke says, even as your father is merciful. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Go and do likewise, Jesus says after this, the story of the Samaritan. Go find yourself in a ditch. So here's, I mean, here's what's happened. We... And again, we could, I mean, we do this all day, but we have all these different narratives in our mind that um, reinforce the behaviors that we take. Um, and, and simply what we've got to do is we've got to try to start replacing those narratives with the narratives that Jesus gives us. Um, the narrative that Jesus gives us um, would say you love your enemies. You do not send back bad things to them. You simply don't do it. You don't retaliate with evil. Now you retaliate, but according to Jesus, you retaliate with good. If it's a tennis match, they're sending hate your way. You're sending love back. You're not just standing there getting hate. You're sending love back. It's a, it's a back and forth. There's retaliation there. What's funny is, is Paul, gotta love Paul. Jesus doesn't give a pragmatic reason for this, right? He doesn't say, because then they're going to be your best friend. <laughs> According to Jesus, typically what will happen is you'll get crucified. And while you're dying, you'll pray for the people who are killing you. I mean, think about that. God himself on the cross is begging God to forgive the people who are killing him. Killing him. That's this lived out. That's all it is. Um, but Paul in Romans 12 is going to add kind of like this insurance clause to it. He's going to say, um, don't repay evil with evil. Instead, repay it with good because then you'll heap burning coals on their heads. <laughs> They'll feel so bad <laughs> when they were mean to you and you were nice to them. <laughs> Paul says, hey, I found out a little secret to this. <laughs> it does kind of seem to work in some cases. Jesus, here's, I mean, here's his, his call to us today. Two things. We'll wrap it up. He says, put yourself in the ditch. Whether it was your fault you're in the ditch, whether it was an accident to you that you're in the ditch, whatever it was, you're in the ditch. Who's your neighbor? Is it the priest and the Levite who walked by and let you die? Versus the Samaritan, who you hated, who deserves to let you die, who you would might do the same thing to, who bandages you up. But then maybe there's the second narrative here. Um, kingdom life, to go back to love the Lord, your God with all your heart. Kingdom life is a life where you have been redeemed. Where the God of the universe has saved you and shown you grace beyond belief. Christians are notorious for this. Jesus would say um, in John, uh, this is how people will know each other. First century church, this is what blew people's minds. Not only do they love people, um, they love everybody. 
They don't. They don't. They won't like defend themselves. Like they, if you wage war against them, they'll sing songs about it and they'll pray about it and they'll be really good to you. We just never seen anything like this. We can't. We seemingly can't really upset them. This was what happened to Paul. You'd beat Paul up, and he'd be happy about it. What do you do to a guy like that? That's miserable. The story, the narrative that Christians find themselves in, is the story where they were the enemy. They were the stranger. They were in the ditch. And God showed up. And the narrative that he had was, I am merciful. So come here. Let me take you to the end. Let me help you. Let me fix you up. Let me heal you. And it's hard for somebody who's experienced that to then not be merciful. So Jesus, be merciful like your father is merciful. Why? Because you are in the ditch and he has saved you. Did you deserve it? No. Look, if, if our love is depending on who's going to deserve it or who has earned it or who will do wise things with it, Jesus could have saved himself a trip. Right? None of us deserved it. But while we were enemies, he died. He gave up everything for us. And how dare we have the audacity to receive that love and mercy and then be in a similar situation and send evil back. I don't think that's a conversation we want to have with our Lord dying on a cross for us. He says, go and do likewise. Go find yourself in the ditch. Go see the eyes of your neighbor who you once thought was your enemy. Go and find what life looks like in the kingdom. Go think about this grace you've been given. That's one of our, our kingdom implementation, implementation questions. Spend time this week reflecting on the relationship between the grace God gave you and the love you're called to show others. There's some scriptures there for you. And then what stories does your heart tell in order to self-justify actions that fall short of loving? What are the narratives in your heart? We all have them. Maybe can you identify some of them? Then create a neighbor. Go make a neighbor. Don't look around and see, is this my neighbor? Is this my neighbor? Is this my neighbor? See someone go, guess what? You're my neighbor. Guess what? I'm loving you. Guess what? I'm blessing you. Or maybe someone who has self-defined themselves as your enemy. You go, oh, I'm sorry. You're confused. <laughs> You're my neighbor. <laughs> this could be real miserable for you. I know. My God's so big that I can, I can take hate. I can take persecution. So I have a lot more sympathy now for people who complain about their back problems. Before, I was like, you know what? Just tough it out. Sit down. No one cares. We can't see it. You're all right. Now I'm like, oh, man, that can really hurt. I know what it's like. I've, I've played that part in the story. And I've been giving mercy to go lay down, to be able to stand up. So the narrative has just changed my position here. I have a different reaction. Jesus comes to his kingdom people and says, hey, you have relationships. Your relationship with people you love, your relationship with people you don't love. Now I'm reminded of the quote by Stanley Hauerwas who says, Christians are commanded to love their enemies, and that includes your spouses. Right? Maybe no more command is more relevant than with your spouses. When people are being good to you, you're good back to them. Okay? You don't have to try hard at that. If you do... Come see me, okay? We'll work on that first. Most people are good at that. That's knee-jerk reaction, okay? Um, but it's when people are bad. It's when your spouse is not doing things the way you think they're supposed to do them. 
It's when your kids are not listening to you at all. It's when your coworkers are jerks. It's when that person down the street is persecuting you. Jesus, that's when you get to live life in the kingdom. That's when you get to see what it's like to be a child of God, to reflect his mercy and his character, and to say, I'll love, and I'll bless, and I'll pray, and I'll do good, and I'll play the role of the Samaritan, because I was once an enemy, but I'm not. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this, this day that you've given us. Thank you for the scriptures that you have graced us with. I pray that as always, um, our eyes would be opened up to the radical nature of your kingdom, um, to the way that it redefines all of our thoughts and all of our relationships and all of our possessions and all of our thinking. Um, I pray that we would never um, stand above you and go, well, oh, I'd love for you to save me, but I would, I would love to not listen to you really tell me what to do with my life. Um, but instead that we'd find our life, we'd find our joy, we'd find our place in the kingdom by following you. That we'd replace our narratives with your narrative. Our loopholes with your truth. Help us be the, the neighbor and help us never forget that we're in the ditch. We were in the ditch. That's why we're singing so loudly to you. That's why we dance. That's why we write that's why we get together. That's why we go on trips. That's why we live life in such a way that we wouldn't need to live life this way. Why? Because we were once lost and now we're found and we're blind and now we see we're yours. Help us be yours. That's in your son's precious and beautiful name that we pray. Amen. We'll now participate in communion. It's the, the, the prime act of worship as we come together each week where we remember his sacrifice for us. We remember.